Cherry Developer News for Tuesday, September 3rd, uh, 2013. I'm Ken Rimple. And I'm Sujan Kapadia. And we're both here to talk about things tech. Joel's away right now. He's uh, on vacation. Uh, Sujan wanted to help with us uh, on the dev news, and so we're having him come on. Thank you very much. Um, pleasure to be here. Yeah. And uh, so let's let's just jump right in. So there's a nice tutorial uh, on thinkster.io. Um, which we'll give you the link to on our show notes page. Uh, an AngularJS tutorial, Learn to Build Modern Web Applications. This is by Matt, uh, Matt Frisbee. That's a great name. Uh, and so he, he, uh, basically goes through an entire, uh, tutorial. It's free of charge on the website, uh, using Angular, uh, to build basically a, uh, what is it? A football, fantasy football league tracking tool. Um, yeah, we may be about a month late on talking about this item. <laughs> <laughs> I just went to my draft yesterday. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but it's a good example and probably fresh in a lot of people's minds right now if you're into sports. Um, so, so he goes through the requirements, uh, and he talks about an interesting term. And I, I, you know, we've all heard of the LAMP stack for, you know, Linux, Apache, um, MySQL, and whatever the P was. And PHP, I PHP, think. thank you, yes. And so now there's the mean stack, um, which would be, uh, Mongo Express, Angular, and Node. So that's an interesting one, right? So he goes through and has them installed. So this basically would be an entire stack that's JavaScript driven from the front end all the way back to the database, which is storing things in little JavaScript documents. Um, and then he has a little Git repository for you to clone. He steps through, you know, setting up the applications, setting up the uh, authentication, um, you know, building a uh, set of public served files for the Angular JS client. Uh, writing some basic authentication. Um, then he talks about how you structure a uh, application in Angular, whereas you build modules, and the modules might have other modules they depend on, uh, and so on. So it's a pretty good, pretty comprehensive uh, um, demonstration. It gets into things like CRUD, you know, uh, creating, reading, updating, deleting documents um, around, you know, leagues and things like that, um, adding teams and such. Uh, and then he's He's apparently keeping this thing going. He has uh, uh, additional tutorial sections for a draft board using Socket.io. Uh -huh. I'm, look I'm looking forward to see that one. I'd like to see that. Um, setting up fantasy lineups, waiver wire and trades, and, and more. So it looks like he's pretty active in this. So that's at thinkster.io. Um, and uh, I'll put a link to that on our show notes page, which this is a good time to mention them. Uh, the show notes are at uh, emergingtech.chariotsolutions.com. If you go to the podcast menu and you pull down Dev News, Developer News, uh, you'll be able to pick this episode, which is episode 58, and uh, you'll see the show notes there. Man, people are really pushing the, the whole, you know, JavaScript in the enterprise. Yeah. Thing pretty heavy now. I think, you know, stacks like these are great, but when you reach a certain level of complexity, it's definitely, t I think it's, it's tough to maintain that code. So it'll be interesting to see what, you know, what sort of things come out around maintaining large, large code bases of JavaScript. Now, not to put you on the spot, I'm just curious. So so the things that you find or the things that you see people most complaining about with in terms of handling complexity, is it things like complicated models? Is it, um, you know, different kind of interactions back and forth that are just hard to do? I think, well, so I, I think it falls under those two things. One is just some of the limitations of JavaScript and this type system and the things you can and can't do mm -hmm. by itself. And there's libraries to sort of patch those things and workarounds and stuff, but it, it like never underscore feels, and stuff like that. And, right. Yeah. It never always, it, it never feels natural as some languages where they thought more about the type system just from the get go. Right. And 
Secondly, obviously, all the asynchronous programming in Node.js, yeah, you have promises, you can chain things, and you can, you can clean up the readability of the asynchronous code, but it's still hard to sort of mentally keep track of all of it and, and, and chain it together and, and debug it. So, On the server side, right, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. because you know, it's all evented, so everything is asynchronous by nature. So handling that is not always simple, and as an application gets a lot larger, sort of maintaining that and being able to unit test it well gets a lot more complicated. So, you know, based on that, why don't we talk about uh, Vertex? So, because it kind of, kind of falls into some of these discussions a little bit, doesn't it? I think from the eventive perspective, yes. It's not really a JavaScript thing, but I think you can do JavaScript stuff with it. So the next thing on our list is uh, a Job World article talking about Vertex. Uh, now, tell us a little bit about what Vertex is. Um, we've talked a little bit about it on the show here and there, but um, you've done a little bit more of a deeper dive, at least in terms of your interests. So define Vertex for people. So Vertex is basically a framework and a library and a runtime system that allows you to build distributed Java or Scala or Python or Ruby and possibly JavaScript, I'm not sure, applications. And it's distributed out of the box. So you, you sort of, with like an actor-like framework, so you sort of build your things called verticals, which are these like independent units that run, and they run in their own thread. They're sort of, you know, singletons in a sense. They're not supposed to be touching anything else or sharing stuff, although it provides ways to share it. But it basically allows you to really easily write a distributed app framework on top of Vertex, which is built on Netty, which is a, a very low-level uh, evented server uh, framework for Java, which is based on NIO. So it's basically a proven framework, uh, built on a proven framework that's really fast, high throughput, provides an asynchronous evented sort of reactor-like uh, pattern that Node.js and other uh, Python and Ruby already have, but into the Java world, and it's polyglot, so you can use different uh, programming languages, but I think the great aspect of it is you really just get distributed and clustering out of the box and sharing that data. So it uses Hazelcast to do that, I and mean, we can talk about that later. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think it makes the things a lot easier, and you know, more and more people are going to start using it just because it's like, oh, wow, it does all these things out of the box, and I can just focus on my application logic again. So it's sort of like you, know, you think of Spring. Oh, it does all these things. I can just focus on my application logic. I sort of see Vertex in that, in that light in terms of distributed and clustering. Yeah, and it's funny, I'm looking just in general, like I'm flipping through the article here on page two, uh, listing to says, you know, it's server.java, and there's a little bit of it that looks a bit like how you boot up Node, where you start a vertical, and in that vertical, you can create an HTTP server, and you add a request handler to it, and for a particular set of URLs, you handle the URLs, and it's, that seems to boot, boot in a very similar way to the way a Node app is written. Right. Um, you do need Java 7 or above to use it. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah. And and it does do JavaScript, by the way. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, yeah. I, I just think it's a it's a lot more modern, and it, the non blocking sort of works better with the uh, NoSQL databases, right? Redis and Mongo and other things like that. So it's definitely a I think something to look into because a lot of the financial applications, and I think even some people at Cherry may have played around with it for some trading systems and things like that, stock quote systems. Right. But it seems to handle that space really well. Yeah, I'm seeing here that uh, there's a nice uh, messaging event bus. Yes. Um, so it allows verticals to communicate with each other point to point, publish, right. subscribe. So you've got that built into the, the stack as well. Which right, is and cool. uses Hazelcast to do that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So that's pretty cool. Neat. Pretty in-depth article, about six pages worth, um, with a lot of detailed information. So, again, that's on javaworld.com. 
uh, and the article is uh, by Stephen Haynes, uh, and it was published on 713. All right, so that's number two. Um, okay, let's move on to something else. Uh, I, I, let's go to another language. Let's go to Scala. Okay. Um, and so I call this uh, duck and wait for the flash um, because, um, you know, first we started out with uh, Spring um, leveling Java 2 EE complexity back in the, you know, last decade. Uh, then Spring kind of went off on a big tangent with Groovy uh, and created Grails. And Grails is a, you know, convention over configuration framework. But then they kind of got back to Spring again and said, how can we make Spring, which was mostly XML driven at the time, how can we make Spring good for developers uh, and bring it into the modern era, and this was about 2009, 2008, they said, well, we'll start with annotations. We'll annotate classes, like make them services or make them controllers. And then it takes away a lot of the XML you would have written. Spin forward a little further, they created a Java programming API for Spring, which feels a little backwards. For yeah, I'm not completely sold on that one. Yet. I'm not either. And, I, and actually, this is kind of going down that road. So we might as well get into the interesting part of it. So, so this is called um, Spring Scala. And Spring Scala has a GitHub repo. It's github.com slash spring source slash spring dash Scala. And, um, and it basically is, is a dependency that lets you A, boot spring beans that are Scala, uh, classes, which we could do anyway, but by just compiling a Scala class. Sure. Adhering the Java bean spec and mounting it as dot class. Right. Um, but also it gives you a DSL, a domain specific language for specifying your spring configuration in Scala. Um, and so I think where my head hurts, and maybe yours too, uh, is is around the idea of Spring was to get the configuration out of the code, right? The wiring out of the code. And Java config, which is basically, you know, you create a, a class that's annotated with that configuration. Um, you write methods that basically do the wiring, and you're writing exactly. Java code to do the wiring. It just feels backwards to me. Right. Now, someone comment. Go ahead. <laughs> we we I, like feedback, you know, but yeah. I. The thing is weird is like you can then I, I so one thing I think it allows right you can actually have some application logic slash business logic whatever to to be more expressive about what beans get constructed how they get constructed and when so you can be more dynamic about that but then it's like do you really want to be I, I wouldn't want that you mean, I don't think I'd want that I, I like right. sort of having it in XML where the whole like you know, putting it in XML and you don't have to go into code to reconfigure things but how often do once the application is deployed, are you you know changing Spring config files at runtime, or is your customer doing that and restarting the you know the yeah, web server? Not for really. I, I don't think it happens that often, but I, I, the whole like you know just the inversion of control framework. That's where it, you really get your bang for your buck. So whether it's XML or Java, I'm like eh, let people do what they want to do. Right, right. I prefer the XML. Yeah, exactly. It's a I do like the thing. profiles thing. Mm -hmm. Oh, and profiles been in Spring for a while, yeah. um, but so if we if we go to uh, you can go to the documentation page. There's a wiki page that explains how to create things. And instead of using annotations, uh, they have a base class uh, called functional configuration. So if you're a Java programmer learning Scala and you happen to know Spring Java config and love it, this is for you. <laughs> right. I mean, it's good if you already have, a, like, for example, what I'm working on. You have a large enterprise app built in Java. Yep. And you'd like to introduce Scala. Hint, hint. I really would like to introduce Scala. I'm taking the Coursera course right now, and I think it's awesome. Yeah. So That's this the one with, um, who is it that, uh, Martin Odersky himself? It's going to run again soon. I'm actually taking the one that's already ran in March just because I don't have time to actually follow it in real time. Yeah, that's the one I, I signed up for. Of, I can yeah. sort of asynchronously do it, which is great. I never got it done, so I know what you're talking about. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, I think it's awesome if to get a company on board with Scala 
slap spring in front of it and maybe your company will be happy. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, check out uh, Spring Scala. It's, uh, what is it, Release Candidate 1.0 was just released. Um, <clears throat> and I'll put a note to that also in the show notes. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about programming here. So uh, let's talk about the Spock programming framework, the testing framework. So Spock is a groovy testing framework we mentioned a number of times on the show. Uh, and I didn't realize there was a method in Spock called old. Now, um, you'd be thinking, is this like a rewind for like, you know, the, the new Star Trek movie or something cheesy like that? But it's really, um, when you're making a test and you're, you're setting up conditions, you can actually ask for the old value of something before the actual test is run. And the expression is old parentheses and the expression. Um, so their example that they give is they're playing around with a spring builder, a spring, I'm sorry, a string builder. And so they're saying, you know, start with the word Spock and then just keep appending from an array of values. Um, and the idea would be that uh, you could, in your test, you can append the value. I'm sorry, in your when statement, you can append the value. And then in your test, which is called the then block, you can say that the new value should be equal to the old value of the string in the string buffer plus the new value. And it's literally old parentheses in the values. Right. It's really cool. Under You know, behind the scenes, what it does is, for, for you groovesters out there, <laughs> it does an AST transformation at compile time, obviously. So then what it's doing is taking the expression within the old, make sure it evaluates that before the when block. So it's basically capturing whatever the values are before the when block and then just sort of stores that and then references it in your actual, D, you know, your Spock DSL. That's pretty freaking cool. I that think. is very cool. Yeah, that this this framework, if you've spent zero time on Spock and you have any inkling towards Groovy, it is a cool framework for writing tests. And in fact, the thing that wins me over is how the way it shows failures and conditions. Um, it really is a very nice, easy to read. It even, it kind of prints out and diagrams the function that, that failed. Is that points, like a report it generates or you mean just on the console? That actually comes out on the console. So okay. that's part of your, your unit. It's running on JUnit. So that's your JUnit output. Okay. Which is really cool. So when you do your continuous integration, those are the types of errors you come back with are really useful ones. And it says, you know, here's exactly where it failed. And this is the value of this parameter and that parameter. And this is what failed. So, so do you, in May, like, let's say you had a Maven project. Is it, yep. does it just run as a normal JUnit, you know, sort just, of, uh, whatever the task is called? The, uh, I forget. It's been a while since. Yeah. There's a Maven Spock plugin you wire okay. up and then you're good to go. So, and then you can just compile your tests and you're good, you know, you're, you're all set. So does it still use like a Maven Surefire thing or does it? Use, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It hooks into the, the, um, the test, uh, compile the test steps and the Surefire plugin. Okay. Actually, I guess technically speaking, it's probably, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Actually, I'm thinking that maybe the Spock plugin runs in addition to the Surefire plugin, but appends output to the same place. Let's talk a little bit about, um, the Arduino. So Arduinos are these really cool little um, machines you can get at now Radio Shack uh, that are kind of low power. <laughs> yeah, they're low power like little prototyping machines. Um, they still have Radio Shacks around? They do, believe it or not. There's one near my house, and they have Arduinos there. Um, now Don Coleman, our, our director of development, who's a big fan of like low power devices, um, I think he would say that you could get get them in other places and get more powerful ones. But uh, I think you can get the Arduino. Uh, I know you can get the Arduino Radio Shack. And so the idea is you can hook up to it with USB drive. You can load things into it. You can, you know, read data off of it. It, it can act as like an A to D and D to A converter um, and all sorts of cool stuff. Well, 
one of the things you can do with these is build really interesting low power devices, purpose built devices. Um, but the problem with what you had with this was you had to communicate through Wi-Fi and Wi-Fi has limited distances or through cables. And it turns out that, um, there's this thing called Flutter and Flutter are little cards that, um, communicate, um, over half mile distances. So they're point to point, basically. Um, you could do things, you know, on a home automation system with it. You could do a radio controlled car, uh, environmental monitoring, monitoring system, any kind of Arduino project, uh, that needs to ferry data, as they're saying in the article, from one point to another. Um, 3,200 feet is the distance. Um, and also apparently they could do mesh networks with these too. So you can have a whole bunch of, desist, uh, of devices communicating, you know, an even larger size than this. Yeah, until they become intelligent and kill us all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, now, I should say, this is cool, but it's a, it turns out it's a Kickstarter proto uh, prototype. So um, they're assuming that it will hit $80,000, in which case if you sign up for 30 bucks, uh, you get a pro, uh, what is it, a pro board with, a, with an antenna for 30, um, a basic board for 20. And uh, yeah, go ahead. I could see an interesting application for like agriculture for farming, mm -hmm. whereas you get that kind of range and you can have sensors set up and Arduino things and they can communicate sort of mesh network and capture data for farmers and for gr crops and that kind of stuff. And I know they're getting, farmers are getting pretty high tech these days, actually. Yeah. This would be something really cool for that, that domain. Yeah. Hey, if you want to help get them over the edge, you actually can make a difference. Um, there are 23 days to go. There's an $80,000 goal. And guess where they are? 70, 79. No, you're close. <laughs> 73,383. There's a real chance for them to, to do this. A pretty very good very good chance um, if people are interested for them you know to actually hit this. My school district should start doing Kickstarter to raise some money. Seriously. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> Mine could use it. Yeah. Neat stuff. So anyway, that's called Flutter. And uh, the article for that was... Um, Let's see here. It was on... Um, TechCrunch. Yeah, TechCrunch. TechCrunch. Give people their, their credit where they're due. And again, we'll post the note to that. All right. Um, so what do you know about Spring and testing? So we use Spring, uh, sort of the Spring slash Jane and test framework, or transactional tests for mm -hmm. integration testing pretty heavily. So what it does is it basically gives you your Spring application context, and you can set up your own test context file and have mock beans in there, or, you know, test versions, test databases, sort of your test configuration, basically. And you can run unit tests, really more of an integration test, that actually starts up a Spring context, wires the beans, you know, you can have connections to databases and that kind of stuff. The Spring, Spring unit test by itself allows you to do that. So you have a mini Spring environment running within your unit test. On top of that, your Spring transactional test is where basically the Spring Transaction Manager will start up its tie tier test. It will allow you to start a transaction on your test case and it it by default will not commit. So it basically just rolls back roll, rolls back whatever you do. So you basically have transactional operations in your database in your unit test rather and you can call your services, you can write stuff to a database, you can then read from it, et cetera, et cetera. So you can test out transactional operations and business logic within a unit test and at the end of it it's all clean it doesn't store anything in the database now I think what this test discusses is one of those pitfalls is just managing all that database stable like well what if you don't want to sort of have to start clean every time and you want to keep stuff around right so across multiple things you can commit allow it to commit so you're actually committing stuff 
So one good thing about that is then you can have multiple tests that use the same environment. You're not setting up stuff per test case. And then you can write something that clears the entire database and re-imports it at the beginning of your overall test suite. <coughs> and running per test suite, obviously, that uh, takes some time and a lot of, uh, a lot of cycles because it's basically tearing down everything and reloading yeah. the database. That's the but killer it, there, yeah. That's the killer there. But it's also, it, it's also good because you don't have to think about the cleanup in the middle of your test. It's just sort of, all right, write this, write this, let this test do this, let this test do this. And I think your test can overall be cleaner, but you have to be careful about your pre and post conditions because stuff is lying around between tests. Another pitfall is multi-threaded tests. So how do you deal with this when you're multi-threading, which is basically the generic, like, oh, I'm sharing state or I'm mutating state and I have multiple threads running. How do I deal with that? Now, I think his, his spin on it being a pitfall, hit, hit, I'm assuming him. I don't know if it's her. Sorry. No, it's, it's him. Yeah. It's him. And actually, by the way, I should mention, this was in 2011. So it's very, I didn't even realize how old the article was, but it's, yeah. it was grist for us talking. So I'm assuming at this point that his opinion is formed differently by now. Yeah. Um, and, and that, uh, this was kind of, as he was picking up something, he picked it out and felt that there were some issues, but, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. So maybe, I don't know if he's trying to say that's a pitfall of transactional tests in general, like regardless of spring or not, or of spring transactional tests. Cause this, that would be weird. Cause that's just, a, that's not really a, a pitfall more like, Hey, I got, like just watch out for this. Like, if you're writing transactional tests and you have multiple threads, well, that's just a pattern you have to understand regardless of what framework you use. Yeah, right, right. Um, I, yeah, I think it's an interesting thing to look at. He does actually get into things towards the end where he, he looks at doing uh, things in Scala test. Yeah, um, I saw that, but I couldn't, I couldn't I can't make follow the connection that. between yeah. that and his previous right, right. comments. So it was kind of weird he just threw that in there. I thought maybe he was going to get into the whole, you know, actor thing and immutability but it never i don't think it ever got into any of that right right and this was two more than two years ago so i would say that it's yeah. probably likely that uh you know the stuff that he was doing there um he probably is a lot differently today right. um so you know i think it's an interesting uh discussion definitely something to read through uh and you know kind of you know see what his point is but right it, it comes down to really that spring is giving you this nice little feature of being able to kind of test something in flight without doing any damage to the data but that you're right, it has a side effect, which is, you know, the side effect is that you can't really test what happens once it's committed, right? And so if you have to do that, then you've mutated the state of your database. Therefore, you have to either undo that or reset it somehow. And I think that's just in general a big pain in the rear end in software development that you just have to think about, you know, plan for in your testing. Yeah, and I guess you could alleviate some of the performance things with like an in-memory database. Yeah, right, right. So that, that'd be cool. But uh, right. if, you're, if you if have you've enough been, time to keep that up to date is the issue. Right. If, you've been, if you're using Spring and you've been under a rock and you don't know about you know, <laughs> Spring unit test framework and Spring transactional tests, go take a look at it because it's going to help you a lot. Right. Or take my training. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, exactly. So um, we're coming up on a Spring course sometime in the fall. Take a look at us at chariotsolutions.com slash education. There's a plug. Awesome. Uh, all right, let's move on a little bit then. Um, hey, is progressive enhancement dead yet? I hope it is. It's not <laughs> it. So progressive enhancement, yeah, this is the concept of, uh, you know, take a, a, a website, start with just the plain HTML and detect whether they have JavaScript. And if you have JavaScript, jam the JavaScript in, make it more, you know, responsive. Um, but it should work as a basic dummy HTML and clicks site, right? Exactly. It should basically, the premises work even if JavaScript is disabled or if 
you know, if your browser doesn't support JavaScript, mm. I don't know anyone on earth using a browser like that. <laughs> who who wants to use a browser like that, right? Right. I mean, why? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I think the premise of this article is, you know, it's dead because for all intents and purposes, every useful website out there, every service people are using nowadays is all heavily JavaScript based and, you know, the browser really is now a container to run applications. Yeah. So then progress in that in that viewpoint, progressive enhancement doesn't make any sense because you're that's not a browser doesn't do that anymore. It's not meant for for that. Right. It's meant to run applications. So probably if you want to just use a plain old website that doesn't have anything, you probably shouldn't be using a browser. Maybe they need to have something else besides a browser that's dumbed down to just deliver pure content. Right. But definitely not the browser. So Fire, this uh, article made a point that yeah, Firefox 23 removed the ability to disable JavaScript or even check for any of that. So you can't have a website that says, you know, if JavaScript's not enabled, do this. Yeah. It, just, it won't support it. And I think that's a bold move. But I think that pretty much everyone out there that it's using the web uses JavaScript. So I don't think it's going to be a problem. You know, it's funny. Um, I love his, this is TomDale.net, by the way, um, Tom Dale. And, um, so he had Yahoo Cats after uh, read through this and give you a draft, uh, a draft as well. Uh, thanks to Yahoo Cats for reviewing this draft. Tell me how mad I just made you. <laughs> um, but it's my favorite sentence in here is that uh, it's at the end. And most importantly, don't be ashamed to build 100% JavaScript applications. You may get some incense priests vituperating you in their their blogs. <laughs> <laughs> Plus one to the complicated sentence. I love it. Oh, that's great vituperating. I yeah. That's probably my first sentence I've heard of that in a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it actually mentions a website called Bustle, which is a Ember.js application, which is an all-client uh, JavaScript uh, front-end uh, that Yehuda did. And it's only 141K of JavaScript for this site, and it's 100% JavaScript. Right. So go figure. It can be small, you know. Very cool stuff. Um, they're they're yeah. building video games now, complete video games yeah. in HTML5 canvas in the web. And if you... You take a look at any of those games. There's a lot of pretty cool stuff out there. I mean, you just go to URL. You don't download anything. You don't need to configure anything. It's just there. Yeah. Even the Pac-Man. There was a Pac-Man demo done yeah. a while back, and you could download all of that JavaScript demo and look at the code. And it feels like the old days of like, maybe you were talking to me about this. It feels like uh, the old days of like Commodore 64 game programming. Yeah. Right? Yeah, weren't we, weren't we having this conversation? It. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think we had it during the OSCON tech test. And yeah, it's like, you know, what a cool concept that you can actually write your games and you don't have to do this web back and forth protocol crap. You're writing a game in a language on a browser that has a canvas drawn. And I think it's great for students and kids to get into it. Yeah. The way it's sort of basic. And when I was growing up, basic was a language that kids got into. And Absolutely. you could do graphics and you could write pretty nifty games in basic. And I think JavaScript sort of fits that 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 itch now or you know scratches that itch now for this generation mm -hmm. yeah and there's enough stuff in html5 you got the audio you've got video you've got the ability to capture things you've got the ability oh, yeah. to you know you've got the control you dragging and clicking and things like that you, you've got it all there yep so i think that the, the biggest thing and I, i'm not really up on 3D canvases and stuff. I know 2D canvas is built into HTML5 as a spec. I know there are 3D canvas APIs out there. I yeah, just there's OpenGL based things. There's WebGL. Yeah. There's definitely a way to do it, and tons of things out there are doing it. They've they've done like uh, Quake and you know all those games. Yeah. They actually ported over to, to pure JavaScript. That's so cool. But there's a thing called mscripten, which basically 
compiles down to the thing called ASMJS, which is like a subset of JavaScript. But basically, you can take C, C, C++ code, it compiles it down to JavaScript. Oh, so cool. So and cool. so they've used that to now convert C-based games into JavaScript. It's, it's freaking mind-blowing. And that's called M-scripted? M-scripted. E-M-script-E-N. Hey, I think the last thing I want to talk about, it, it made me laugh so hard when I saw it. I think it made you laugh too. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm yours is... right now. <laughs> right, 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 right. It's, um, it's, it's uh, on the verge. Uh, there's a... Uh, I'll, I'll read the headline because it's just a great headline. Reflections from London skyscraper melting parked cars. Um, that's great stuff. Um, hey, what yeah. happens when you, um, Sujan, what, what happens when you actually make a lens out of your building? It's going to focus the light, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I didn't think that was a way to, like, you know, get rid of Deadwood at your company. Like, all right, let's just melt the people that don't do anything. But, uh, yeah, that's pretty crazy. I first time I saw that title, I thought maybe it was like an Onion article or something. It was a joke. No, and it isn't. It's a freaky thing. So, so Chris Welch at The Verge uh, wrote this up uh, <laughs> yesterday. Um, reflections coming off a London skyscraper are so intense that they're melting cars parked at a nearby street. And they show the picture of the car, like it, it was actually deformations, like. The plastic was melting, the yeah. was melting, and even the outside of the car, it started deforming. It was like, oh, my God. Oh, man, it's hot, not good. How hot and concentrated the, the light must have been at that point. Now, so my tweet – wait, let me find my Twitter tweet because it's – Yeah, your it's tweet's great. <laughs> um, it was um, London building focuses melt beam. And the, like the eye of Sauron, the beam moves. And that was what he was saying in there is that basically it's not like it just focuses the rays in one spot. The, the sun moves across the sky. Yeah. And as it moves, it's like this beam is moving around. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a sun clock that kills things. <laughs> no one can be safe from the hours of... It's not classified as a weapon. It's just a clock. So, yeah. But when, I think a great, this is a great example for engineers, right? The law of unintended consequences. Like, <laughs> you build something, it may get used in ways you didn't expect it to get used. It may do things you didn't expect it to do. So, mm. I think as engineers, as architects, as technology architects, you know, we actually need to consider that when we're building systems. It's a 150 degree temperature that it shoots off. And there's an Instagram picture. Um, where like the, the, the beam is actually focused on one spot where I guess it's cool enough that they could stand there. Um, and one guy says it's a good 10 degrees hotter in here. <laughs> so you could probably like fry eggs or like, you know, the guy, the guy could be out there cooking breakfast right at that spot. Right, right. So there you go. Remember, whatever you do, you might do something to someone by accident. Uh, so make sure you think about all the cases. At least it's not reflecting the light like the way that inside the building that looks like. <laughs> <laughs> you're sitting at your desk and everything starts no, to no. just fire. <laughs> I see an upside. I see an upside. As long as you know where it's going to be, put the coffee pot there. <laughs> <laughs> put all your old hardware there. Let it explode. That's right. Recycling by vaporizing. <laughs> uh, well, Sujan, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, so you. It was a lot of fun. Sure. you'll have me again. We will. Absolutely we will. <laughs> so the, the, the uh, Dev News is brought to you by Chariot Solutions Education Services. Uh, we do training in Java, Scala, uh, Maven, Spring, a whole bunch of other things as well. Um, coming up in uh, September is an Android class we'd love to fill. Uh, it's an introduction five-day course to Android and uh, gives you the fundamentals on you know the user interface, designing the widgets, communicating uh, with backend systems, uh, storing databases, working with the camera, and all sorts of stuff like that. We also have a spring course coming up, I believe, in early October. 
Uh, so look us up on the web at chariotsolutions.com slash education. Uh, and of course, we're part of Chariot Solutions, which is a great uh, consulting shop doing all sorts of interesting things in, you know, application development in enterprise, mobile, uh, and all sorts of uh, interesting languages as well. Is a just quick, is a fast track to Scala course already full? Oh, and there is a fast track. Thank you. And you know, Mike would kill me if he didn't uh, if he knew I didn't do this. So <laughs> if you go to chariotsolutions.com/education, you will find. Uh, if you're listening to this in the time frame, you'll find a fast track to Scala course coming up on the 26th and 27th. And so that's coming up first, actually, and it is not full. So we cool. definitely have room if you're looking for a Scala course. And that is the one that TypeSafe uh, put together. In fact, Martin Odersky helped put this course together for uh, TypeSafe. Awesome. Yeah. All right. That'll about do it. So again, to, to subscribe to this, uh, you can go on iTunes and search for uh, developer news, uh, Cherry Developer News. Uh, you can also hit emergingtech.chariotsolutions.com uh, and go to the podcast menu where you can also find our TechCast podcast, which is a lot of really interesting uh, interviews with all sorts of people in technology. Most recent one being the people who uh, bring you, uh, um, uh, what is it called? Now this is terrible that I now have to actually edit the podcast. <laughs> um, they bring you Magnolia CMS, which is a content management system written in Java. And uh, they actually have a spring add-on called Blossom. And we had an interview with those guys just recently last week. So check out the TechCast. And also now we have Tracy Wilson-Rossman from Chariot doing a Business of Technology podcast as well. So go check all those things out. And last but not least, if you missed our Emerging Tech Show, uh, you can actually see 20, no, I'm sorry, 36 or 37 of the actual presentations. Wow, we're up to that wow. Yeah, we're that many. Um, on our website, again, at the emergingtech.chariotsolutions.com site, head on over to the, the uh, ETE 2013 link or to the screencast link, and you can view those podcasts as well as others uh, as screencasts. Yeah, you need to check them out. They're awesome. Amazing people. Not us. Amazing people that have been on there. People we curated, we know. Yeah. Um, you know, Famous Java developers, Scala developers, you name it. They're all there. I know we'll be going back at least for several years looking at those videos over and over again. There's just so much to learn. There's great stuff. All right. I think that's enough self-advertising. Uh, so uh, <laughs> uh, we'll see you and uh, make it a good week. And go write some code. Maybe even write uh, an Arduino app that uh, self-modifies and, and, and goes and throws over the world. Awesome. <laughs> Talk to you later. <laughs> Take care. Bye.